Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are here at the Peoria Journal Star for another podcast or faith or Facebook Live thingy, um, and we're going to be talking. Yeah, thingy. <laughs> we're going to be talking about um, a topic that may, many of you might not have heard, heard of. It's called harm re- reduction, and we're going to be talking about it in the wake of the opioid crisis. I have three folks here who know a lot about this and frank frankly far far more than me so i'm gonna start right right here and could you maybe tell <laughs> tell the audience who you are and um a bit about what what you um do yeah my name is chris shafter i'm the program director at jolt harm reduction center with the jolt foundation uh here with dr olt um we provide comprehensive harm reduction services really to uh, prevent the spread of uh, communicable diseases and other harm and uh, health care related issues to substance use high-risk sexual behavior um, uh, on individuals and in our community Hi, I'm Dr. Tamara Olt with uh, Jolt Foundation. I'm the founder and executive director. Um, I lost my son Joshua to a heroin overdose six years ago, and we established Jolt and started giving out naloxone in the community, and now we've progressed to more comprehensive services, as Chris explained, running um, syringe access program, with, which is so much more than that, which we'll talk about. Um, I'm also a practicing OBGYN here in the community, um, but what Jolt is just here to save lives and uh, respect the lives of people who use drugs. And then, and then on the um, other side of the, of of the, of that is Jamie Jamie Har Jamie Harwood. Jamie, Hi, Andy, Jamie. and hello to your viewers. Um, happy to be here today with the Jolt Foundation, Chris and Tammy. Um, I'm the corner corner of Peoria County. I'm also a registered nurse by trade. I've been working um, and supporting the Jolt Foundation uh, since before I was actually elected and in, into my tenure here as coroner. Um, I think. Um, harm reduction works. I think the data will support that harm reduction works. So what we have going in Peoria County um, is is absolutely necessary and needed for, for saving lives and preventing deaths in Peoria County. So I, I want to say thank you to my colleagues here to my left um, who are the front runners of initiating harm reduction in Peoria County. We're very fortunate to have them. Thank you. Okay. Well, we, um, as, 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 as I said at the at, on the very start of this, we are on Faith Facebook Live. You can go to the um, Journal Star website. I'm sorry, to the Journal Star Faith Facebook page, and you can leave a common comment there, and we will try to um to um get it. So the first thing I'd like to know is we have thrown out these two words: harm reduction. What is it? I mean, that, that's not a term that the average per, person would um, use. 
who would like to attack tackle that? Uh, I will. Um, harm reduction doesn't apply just to drug use. That's how we're discussing it here. But in medicine and health, Jamie is a nurse. Wearing um, bicycle helmets would be a form of harm reduction. Seat belts. It's all just seeking to reduce the risk of harm or injury when you engage in a risky behavior where you may get hurt. And so this just applies to drug use. So anything that we can do to keep people healthy while they're using, to help steer them to treatment, and it, um, and also protect our community from an outbreak of communicable diseases like HIV and hepatitis C. But is it but is it just for a um, drug for a um, drug for drug use? I mean, it seems like. Given what you said, we actually do some of this stuff in our ev our ev our everyday lives. Chris, uh, I, per, I perform harm reduction approaches every time I put a seatbelt on in my car. Uh, I buckle my kids up because I don't want to get into an accident and have them at risk for serious harm. Uh, just about everything we do is impacted by harm reduction. It's the intent to make our world safer as we all navigate it in the various ways we do. So, so would it be sort of like if you have a blood, um, a blood a sugar issue, and you want to eat a twink, twink, twinkie? Would it be that not e- eating that twink, twinkie would be a form of harm reduction? Sure. Okay. But then also would be uh, taking medication that offsets the negative impact of that Twinkie if you decide to eat it because would you have it the freedom also, to eat it. Would it also would it also be work working out and um, and um, sure. exercising? Is harm reduction as someone who uh, works on it on an everyday basis? Is it sort of a lifestyle? Is it sort of a state of a mind or is it a single act? <clears throat> Yeah, I think it's it's a it's a it's a, an attitude uh, and a set of behaviors that go along with that. Um, you know, harm reduction is a means to keep people safe, particularly around drug use or high risk sexual behavior. So, one of the primary things that we do at Jolt is we test for HIV and hepatitis C, so that we can get people connected to treatment for both of those conditions early before it causes other problems. Part of the way that we do that is by providing instruments, education, and tools that can reduce their risk of being exposed to those things. So that would be, you know, condoms or syringes or you know, clean utensils, so that we reduce the risk of those infections. So why don't we why don't we talk about some some of this stuff? Because um, one of these things we have we have been doing for um, years here. And you guys have been a part of it. Jamie has been a strong ad, 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 advocate of it, and that is pan, passing out nar, nar, Narcan, or as it's, or, um, as, it's as uh, the drug is, Novoxone. Why is that a first step, Jamie? Um, I'm going to go back to something that Tammy said too, just to put a, uh, a cap around it. Um, harm reduction is health promotion. It's it's taking part in health promoting activities to sustain health in the in the individual. This conversation, particularly about um, drug use, but health promotion and and harm reduction, I would use uh, in synonymous terms. Uh, it's it, what was your question again? Now that I got that out. <laughs> 
um, on um, nar, nar, on nar, nar yeah, so can. You and I had a conversation uh, earlier this week, Andy, on on naloxone and uh, Narcan and and a whole bit of harm reduction activities. And naloxone is the first thing that we can do that that really has been done in our community to prevent death. And uh, and it does. It's it's the uh, antagonist of the opioid, which can literally bring somebody out of um, an unresponsive apneic situation and give them back an opportunity um, for life to get treatment, et cetera. It's, so it's it the very first. So it, ba- basic, it basically reverses the effect of yes. the drug. Yes. For, for those of us who are, who are not a nurse. Sure. Yes. Thank you. Eh, well, you know, <laughs> I, I am there for you. Why is it, I mean, what goes in, what goes into passing that out? I mean, you could just get, I believe it comes in two forms, a na- nasal spray, and it comes in an auto... Um, um, Injector. Yeah, thanks. And the que- I think that we just have here the na- 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 nasal spray, I no, think. D- no, we actually have both. No. Jolt gives out intramuscular because it's more cost-effective. So the people actually draw up the medication mm-hmm. in an intramuscular syringe and give it. It's less expensive than the nasal, so that we get, are able to blanket our community with the with the medication. Um, the brand name nasal is du- double, triple the cost, at least, of what we give out. So there is HSC gives mm-hmm. out some nasal, but the more, majority of our community distribution is the intramuscular naloxone. Okay. So day to day. Uh, as as someone who works on the grant, the drug overdose prevention grant through the Human Service Center, day to day we spend time going to organizations that serve high risk people. We go to family members. We go uh, and meet individuals. People come to us, and we train them to recognize an opioid overdose and how to respond to that with uh, the reversal medication naloxone. And so a common day for me would be spending maybe lunchtime down at the Salvation Army, working with individuals that are coming there for their meal program and training them on how to use it. And then maybe later that day, I'm down at task probation and I'm teaching the staff down there and, and, the, and the counselors down there how to use it in case there's an overdose situation on site. And then I might go from there to a high school and do education with, a, with seniors in high school on how to, how to avoid overdoses and how to prevent them. And so it, it's a myriad of different things that we do. There's a couple of us at the Human Service Center that do community education. My partner, Sue Tisdale, is working with law enforcement. She's trying to get naloxone into the jails so that it's distributed at the site of release because those individuals who are mm-hmm. opioid dependent are at the highest risk of overdosing what? when they've been abstinent. Abstinence. Because when you have abstinence for at least two or three days, your tolerance will drop again. And if you go back to using, you discharge in withdrawal, you go back to using again because being sick is so intolerable that you can't use the same amount that you used to use. And that becomes toxic and it kills you. I see. I see. Um, it it sounds like is all this is more than just pat 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 passing out a shot or a nasal spray. It's, it sounds like it's a multi thing. Has it worked? And what I'm saying is, has it worked? Uh, is you can't judge throughout the area, but from the people that you are talking to, are you finding that there is a change of things thinking when it comes to um, this? Uh, how do you mean change of thinking? Well, I mean, if you, if you were to go into a school, 
in certain parts of town, they might think, I don't know any, anybody that has to deal with this. I don't really need to wor- wor- sure. worry about so it. So I can tell you a year ago, if I approached a school to see if I could train their staff, um, the, sta- the school most likely would have told us, oh, we don't have that problem here, and we don't want to take on that mm-hmm. liability. And now uh, they call and ask. And now they they, they're calling me every day, and I'm dri- we're driving to 40 separate counties throughout the state to train high school administration and nursing staff and we're, we're getting into health classes. And so the attitudes in the last year or two have changed significantly about the importance of naloxone and having it. And most people are taking this attitude. I'd rather have it and then not ever need it than to need it on the rare occasion that I might need it and then not have it. Does it, um, does it, um, last naloxone? Yeah. Yeah. So, there's an expiration date on all of it, right? The pharmaceuticals will always put an expiration date on it, probably because they just want you to buy more of it. Um, this stuff has <laughs> been studied extensively. There's so much data that supports its efficacy of up to 95% for five years and beyond the expiration date. It's, it does it have to be stored hot, cold? Room temperature. Okay. So it, it, it's pre- pretty e- easy to... Um, to um, to amuse, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. What are some of the other forms of uh, harm reduction that you guys do? You guys men mentioned need needles. Sure. So uh, last night, Tim and I were training on hepatitis C, and we're realizing that hepatitis C is a greater risk right now for IV drug users because that's the primary way that hepatitis C is transmitted from person to person. And unlike HIV, which won't last outside the body for more than just a few seconds, hepatitis C can stay alive in its viral form for several weeks sometimes. So if you're sharing syringes with people, that virus isn't going to die. It can remain active. And that's how HIV or hepatitis C is being spread. So if we can use the intervention of providing single-use sterile syringes to individuals and teach people how to use them appropriately, we will, imp- we will directly impact uh, the rate of the spread of hepatitis C. What other type of, of, in, of infectious diseases could be spread by the... Well, HIV and hepatitis C are, are, are the, the two main. viruses, mm-hmm. but also, and I know from being involved with people who've lost their children through GRASP and Broken No More, another organization I'm a part of, I have direct contact with people who've lost family members every day, and I hear multiple people that their kids have actually died, not from overdose, but bacterial endocarditis. Mm-hmm. So when you, when you use, you know, unclean um, equipment, and inject, you get bacteria in the bloodstream, and it settles on the heart valves and destroys the heart valves. And the person can die from this. Um, or it's very expensive, obviously, to have to have some sort of major heart surgery to correct. But often these people are not treated because they're in active use and they can't get the treatment for the disease. Are they, so they die of septicemia, which is an overwhelming bacterial infection, or bacterial endocarditis. So bacteria and viruses can be transmitted with unclean um, equipment. So do um, do um, you guys go and then take back the old the old need needles? I mean, we do that a couple different oh, yeah. ways. We'll, we'll go pick them up. We provide sharps containers so that we reduce the amount of needle litter in the homes and in the communities, and then we'll, we'll dispose of them when we collect them as well. So people can either bring them back to us, and then we will have them medically disposed through uh, an organization that handles that specifically, or we'll pick them up at different sites where we place sharps containers. And how is, how is it work, working? Yeah, we've collected my 
my estimation is around 15,000 used syringes. That are when? since we've opened April, in May. April, May. Yep. Wow. So that's wow. that's fifteen thousand syringes that haven't been flushed down the toilet, that aren't stuck in a tree in a park, that aren't left in an alley somewhere, uh, that aren't left in bathroom counters, public restrooms. These are syringes that are going to be that are put in sharps containers. They're handled by uh, medical professionals, and they will be disposed of in a way uh, in which they'll probably be incinerated, uh, and it won't pose a risk to the public health. And 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 how many have um, you pa- passed out? How many syringes have yeah. we passed out? Or need need Yeah, that's a good question. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks, Andy. That's what you do, right? Um, <laughs> I would say um, thousands. I don't. I don't. I don't have a, a number off the top of my head right now. Um, but we've we've collected more than we've passed out. So that means people were holding on to them for long periods yeah. of time because they didn't want to just dispose of them in an unsafe manner. Yeah, because we're a new agency, they had syringes yeah. that they had kept, and so we took them in. So traditionally, syringe exchanges will give out more than they take in because not everybody brings them back. <coughs> but we're a little reversed right now. But I think that's just because we're a new agency. Eventually, those no, you know those numbers will reverse. Um, now imagine. there are going to be some, and I've seen it in some of the con- comments here, that um, and, and and folks, please, you can always you know leave a question, and we would love to um, hear from 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 uh, you. Um, there are going to be some out there who are going to say, guys, you're giving need- needles to people who use drugs. That is breaking the um, law. Um, you guys give. I also believe I, I was at the Jolt Center um, er, er, earlier this month, and you give out other type of medical things. You give out band band aids. You give out um, uh, swabs for alcohol, for alcohol, for al for al for alcohol, um, tur- tourniquet strips. Um, clean little basins so that you could melt the stuff. I guess I don't really use drugs, so I don't know. Um, there's going to be pe- people out there who say, wait a second, you're letting folks use drugs. Con- comments? We're not letting them. People are going to use drugs. We just like them to have a clean syringe to do But it. why? To prevent disease, to keep them healthy. For every dollar spent on a syringe exchange, $7 are saved and public health costs. Really? So really? Are, why? But, well, I mean, what, what do you so mean by The cost by of that? treatment for treatment. hepatitis C is exactly. around $100,000 for one individual. We can prevent them from getting hepatitis C for less than $1,000 a year on that person by providing sterile unused syringes. It's cost effective. So even if somebody can't get behind the idea or can't get over this misunderstanding that we're enabling drug use, um, they can certainly get behind the fiscal, how fiscally responsible this is, uh, that we're spending excessive amounts of money. A lot of people that are at risk for contracting hepatitis C also tend to be on Medicaid because of intravenous drug use. So that cost is going to be incurred upon the taxpayers. So this is a financially better system to prevent rather than to treat. But is this just a a a worst case thing? I mean, does this re- really happen out there? I mean, are p- people out there really passing and spread spreading HIV and all this stuff out, out there by the use of de- needles? Jamie, any, any anybody? 
Have you guys heard about any, any, anything in, in re, recent years? I mean, that's the whole that's the whole point of uh, the harm reduction with the needle exchanges to prevent the further. I mean, clearly there's there's evidence and, and studies that would say that we have an increase in hepatitis C transmission because of the IV drug use. So it stands to reason that the harm reduction has been implemented as a preventative measure. So. Yeah, it's a it's a the public health, it's a public health intervention. Syringe access programs have been studied for years. We're new here, but these have been all over our country for years, and the the efficacy and cost savings has been proven over and over again. So that we don't really have to debate. That's already been established. This syringe exchanges are encouraged by the World Health Organization, by the, the CDC. CDC. Um, in, you know, most major. Um, medical associations support it, so we know we know it's it's the right thing to do. It's just not everyone agrees with that, but we just really try and practice evidence based, science based interventions to do what is what wasn't we know there works. and wasn't there and um H, I, I I'm looking at my notes was wasn't there and um and um HIV out outbreak? Could you maybe talk a bit about a bit about a bit about that. Yeah, it was in Scott County in Indiana. There was a community of people using um, IV drugs, and it was a big outbreak in a very small town. It was the result of shut of at Shared, the time Governor Pence shutting shut down. down the syringe exchange. They had no services. So the, they had no services. People were resorting back to sharing syringes again, and then that blew up the the um, outbreak. And do and and do we know how how many folks were actually mm. infected? Or don't. I think it was around like 260, something like that. It was a significant and this amount was, in a and small this within, And this was in a very small town? Because mm-hmm. I think Scott County is in southeastern Indiana. Yes. I, I believe. I think I'm so not too. sure, though, but I, I believe. Um, so we've talked a little bit about that. I've gotten a quick question here. Thank you very, very much on something called the Good, the good Samaritan Law. Jamie? Yeah, it's immunity. So if you're with another person who's using and that person goes unresponsive or stops breathing and you call 911 and the uh, paramedics show up, um, they don't call law enforcement or you're not held accountable. Um, so the Good Samaritan Law protects you from liability um, or being taken into custody. And why is that a, I mean, yes, I mean, it, it, it sounds good, but is that a controversial thing or is that just something I mean, that I think, sounds, because that sounds new? I think everything that we're talking about it can it's obviously new. have some sort of controversy, but if if your friend has used and is unresponsive and you have a fear of getting taken to jail because you're using with them, you're not going to call, and then that person's going to lose their life. So, of course, the Good Samaritan Law in, um, in use is obviously a good thing. I would imagine that that, I mean, but here's the thing is the people who are going to watch this podcast are probably not the one who this law is aimed at. It could be, but it's not likely. Are you guys letting folks know about this? Is this something that the average person on the street knows about? And when and when we do do these needle things, because you guys are working on the street level, people walk in, they talk to you, you deal with folks, you go out, you talk to them. Talk to me a bit about what you tell them, um, and talk to me a little, little little bit about how they talk back to you, please. Because some of this, the because the whole 
whole goal of this, I believe, is to keep folks safe until they can reach the point where they can start to help themselves get out of this mess, right? Yeah. Okay. I, I want to clarify the Good Samaritan law a little bit, too. It's only... People can only have small amounts of a drug and be immune from prosecution. Thank you, Tammy. If there's more than a certain level and it depends on the drug, they can be prosecuted. There are also, and, and I'm a big proponent of the Good Samaritan law, because I don't want to see people lay there and die because somebody's afraid to call. But there, not too much in this area, but in some <coughs> areas throughout the country and our state, there are workarounds to this. So say if that person was the one who bought the drugs that day, they live, the other person dies, they can be prosecuted for drug-induced homicide. And it's, ha- and it's happened. Friends, husbands, wives that use together. The other person that survives is prosecuted, and it's a Class X felony on Illinois, punishable by 30 years in prison. So we have to be careful. It's it's not a perfect system. If if we didn't have the use of drug-induced homicide laws, it would be a very good system that the person would truly not be in fear of being prosecuted. There's still people being left at uh, emergency room doors, put in alleyways, hallways, because people are afraid to call. So it's a great law, but there are workarounds to it, unfortunately. Do the average, I'm sorry, does the av, av, does the average per, per person know about this? I mean, again, I'm talking about the people on the street. They know. Okay. And what is their approach to it? Has it, ha, has it been used? Have you guys heard on an anecdotal level whether it's been used or not? I can tell you a lot of the people I've talked to, they're aware, the street-level users are aware of the Good Samaritan law, but still don't believe in its viability. They're still scared that they're going to be prosecuted for a nonviolent offense. Uh, so there's still that risk that their friend will suffer and die because of that fear. Um, and I think you get mixed results. You still got to deal with the public stigma and attitudes of um, other individuals that might have to intervene. Um that maybe don't agree with the law. Um, I was trying to be delicate as I said that. Well, you don't actually yeah. have to have I know. to be. You can, you can be blunt. I think I, law enforcement sometimes struggles to, uh, to really um, work with that, with that law. I mean, their goal is, is, is crime prevention, and if it's, if it's against the law, they want to prosecute and punish, right? That's the nature of the law enforcement system. And so I think the historical relationship with people who use drugs and their, uh, their tactics in addressing drug crime um, has left a really nasty taste in the mouths of those who are in the best position to help people mm-hmm. that are overdosing. I mean, it's, it's almost like a post-traumatic experience. They're, they're like, this is what's always happened, so I don't necessarily believe that you're going to change this now. And so I'm not going to call. I'm not going to. I'm not going to call because I could be looking at this drug-induced homicide, or I could be looking at other charges. And it's already hard enough for me to find a job. You know, it's already hard enough for me to survive from day to day. It's already hard enough for me to navigate this. I don't need this on me too. Um, well, you know, I I would also like to hear from what do you guys when you talk to folks? I mean, is the goal to try to get them into some form of treat, 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 treat? 
treatment and when you do pass out a needle or when you do give them Narcan or when you do give them clothes or snacks. I even thought snacks mm-hmm. were, were even in your thing. And they look good, guys. I want to say it was very, no very Twinkies. nice snacks. No Twinkies, sorry. <laughs> I really do like twi- Twinkies. Um, but the thing is, is that what do you what what do you talk to folks about? I mean, do you say, "Hey, John, Johnny, Jane, Fred, whatever"? How is life? How are you doing? Because I would imagine part of all this is just having someone who cares. Mm-hmm. I would imagine, yeah. or no. So you know, uh, I'm glad you asked that, because well, so many, so many of the people who um, participate in services are so impacted by it that they want to help out. And, and volunteer or help, you know, provide the same kind of services to people that they care about so that they can stay alive. So I think there's a real connection when you're met in a non-judgmental way and you're met right where you're at without any coercion to change. People tend to make changes on their own then that are positive. So our definition of success in harm reduction is any positive change. Right, so if you have someone who's sharing syringes or using contaminated syringes and they change a behavior to use single-use sterile syringes and then they discard them in an appropriate way, that's a positive change, even though they still may be actively using. And they may choose to never stop using, but they have made a healthier decision and it's minimized the impact on themselves and society around them. But what we usually see is that change begets another change, a small one. And then, which begets another change. And then one day I decide, you know, I haven't been feeling really good. Maybe I should get tested. And I find out I'm positive for hep C. Like, man, I really can't share syringes anymore, and I need to get this taken care of. And then they ask me, hey, can you, where do I go to get taken, you know, this hep C taken care of? We can get them connected to primary care. We can get them connected to, um, uh, you know, hepatitis C or HIV treatment. We can get them connected to treatment facilities and mental health support. We work closely with the Southside Office of Concern to help with rapid rehousing and and uh, and housing for homeless individuals. Uh, we've got great treatment providers in the area. Uh, and given that I spend uh, half of my day working for HSC, I help them. Wait, nav- what is what is HSC? Human Service Center. Thanks. We provide mental health and substance abuse at the community level. Um, is I have the ability to help at least help them navigate those systems. And so more often than not, we know empirically that coercion and manipulation do not um, facilitate long-term change. So you can force someone in there through a, a, a court diversion program or maybe somebody enters treatment because their family is, is really upset by their drug use, but it was an emotional plea. That doesn't, those emotional pleas don't change the damage done to the brain by these drugs. You know... I have done a pre-previous podcast, and we might try to uh, link up to that, where we actually did talk about the brain and how it changes. Mm-hmm. We're not going to go in. We're not going to go into all that. But it is true that the brain does change, and that's one of the re- reasons why these uh, drugs are so hard to stop. Um, James, Jamie, you see the end re- the result. You, you see what happens when all this stuff does not work. The joke found the joke folks have been here for about six to eight months um, doing doing some something they've been here for two to three years passing six out years. Narc- what six years for right. naloxone. six years yeah. for for of Narcan and for the other stuff over, over overall you are the one who's going to see whether it's working or not by the number of deaths. And that's a sad, sad thing. That's a sad way to judge it. But it's also the most honest way. 
So what have um, you seen, Jamie, over the – you have been core, 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 core now for two years. Um, two years you, tomorrow, Andy. Two years tomorrow? Mm. Hey. <laughs> Yay. Yeah, you know, uh, you and I spoke earlier yesterday, and I, I pulled uh, some research, um, journal articles, and one of the one of the articles I pulled out uh, really specifically spoke about harm reduction. It was an article by the CDC that was put out in October of 2018, and what what the CDC recommended for harm reduction is is almost exactly what we're doing here in Peoria County right now for harm reduction, which really really made me happy because what we're seeing right now as of today is we have just about 30 percent reduction in our overdose deaths compared to last year, um, and that's that's really really strong data. And and you asked me yesterday. Yesterday, well, how do we know that the harm reduction is working? Well, it's evidence-based practice. Like Dr. Alt mentioned, harm reduction is evidence-based best practice, and that's what's been implemented in Peoria, and we've had a reduction in our overdose deaths. So it's working. And and there are more things to do, and Dr. Ol can talk about um, uh, medically-assisted treatments, and that is the best standard of, of treatment for someone who subs, uh, suffers from a substance use disorder. And we need more of it. We need we need more medically assisted treatments um, to further reduce our deaths. And, I, and but we're well on our way, man. We're we're trailblazing here in Peoria County. I'm proud but, of these guys. But could it also be that we just haven't gotten a bad um, batch of um, drugs? I mean, I mean, I think we could ask a hundred questions about why. But when when we look at evidence based practice and we are implementing evidence based practice, you're going to have uh, results from. From what you're doing, well, I last think time fentanyl's you, everywhere. Yeah, last time Jamie and I talked, so. overdose deaths were going down, but overdoses in general weren't reducing. Correct. So we're still seeing a similar number of overdoses compared to last year, but they're not resulting in death. And that brings to me, you mentioned something, and thanks so, 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 so much because I forgot to bring it up. Fentanyl test, fentanyl test strips. Last um, la- last year, we had a huge spike, and it was because we got fen- fentanyl, which is vastly more more po- potent than um, nor- normal hair- heroin. And um, are you guys pan- passing those out, too? Yeah, they're f- yeah, we give those out for free. And, um, and what have you found from um, use, 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 users? Are they e- e- eager to uh, use those? I mean, are people – because I would assume that no- nobody really wants to die. I mean, and I'm not trying to be yeah. glib, but I would also imagine – I mean, they're scared of this stuff too, but they want to use and they want to feel better. It makes people – I mean, even though somebody may not test every single shot – that they take with with their fentanyl test strip, it just makes them. And you pretty much at this day and age, you have to assume that what you're getting has fentanyl in it. But it may make you just take a, a moment, go slower, not use as much, don't use alone. Just some steps that people can take to keep themselves safe while using. And they may test some and like, okay, there's fentanyl in there. I need to not use as much, or they may choose not to use it. You know, they may make sure a friend is around, but always. To, to help prevent overdose. So, and, and it's been shown, there was a study done on fentanyl test strips saying even if people weren't using it every time, it made them implement measures that made them less likely to die of an overdose because it just took that second to think about it. Fentanyl's probably here. I'm going to be careful. With, with the people I see every day that come in, I talk to them specifically about the, the substance, the, the content of the drugs that they're using. And when given the opportunity to use a tool like a fentanyl test strip, 
people will make better choices about how to use that, safer choices that reduce their risk. Because you're right. Nobody's like, I want to use this and die today. So armed with that information, the ability to mitigate their own risks, most people want to do that. And they do do that. They, and they'll tell me, I've adjusted my behavior, my drug using behaviors when I tested positive for fentanyl. Mm-hmm. And the fentanyl test strips, Andy, were part of what the CDC recommended in their um, guidelines in uh, October 2018 that they put out was fentanyl test strips. So it's part of, it's again part of the evidence based best practice. Mm-hmm. And, so, and I agree with what Chris said um, earlier that I want to comment on is it's incremental little steps of promotion. Um, it's the same thing like if you have someone with heart disease, are you going to force them to take their cholesterol medicine, force them to eat right, force them to exercise? No, but uh, empirically, if they do that on their own, own, they're more likely to make better choices on their own, and, and the same it's is sustainable. true. It's absolutely sustainable. All right, guys. Well, we are going. We are. We are going to start to wrap this this up. I would like to have some uh, fine, final thoughts, um, Chris. Uh yeah. Here's what I want. I want to say to um, to people who think that we're enabling uh, to the naysayers of harm reduction um, is I would say you're absolutely right. We are absolutely enabling drug use, but we're enabling safe drug use, and we're enabling people to continue breathing and to continue to live, and we're enabling families from not experiencing deep traumatic grief, and we're also enabling hope in people that maybe one of these days they can get it right. And just because an individual chooses to use drugs does not mean they deserve to be treated with less dignity or humanity, doesn't mean they should be denied health care and, 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 and healthy choices, because um, we all have our things that we do that put our health at risk. Um, and you don't hear people giving a lot of people a hard time about excessive Twinkie consumption. Hey, right? don't bag, all right, Andy, don't there bag you on. Driving without seatbelts, texting right. and driving. Right. I mean, the list is endless. You, the list is there, endless. Though, you actually do get a lot, a lot of grief. You could get a ticket. Yeah, text it, yeah. No, but and I get all that. Are you and I and I happen to have said that this is it. But I want to ask: Are you finding that the more that we talk about this with the addicts um, and and the youth, youth, the more that they hear it, the more likely that they might wind up into some type of treat of treatment. Yeah. I mean, is there is there some type of journal store article or there's, evidence? There's, there's, there's a there's lot data of data that shows that people who enter. Uh, syringe exchanges are five times more likely to choose treatment on their own or just to abstain on their own. Learn to, to be able to uh, safely taper off or engage in medication-assisted treatment, and they're more likely to pursue a life of substance use management, the safer and healthier, or abstinence. Um, that's just what the data shows across the board. Um, but this is the most effective way of getting people into treatment is by just helping them take care of themselves better. Gosh, just for them to know that they're cared for. Yeah. It might just huge. might just be the one thing that they need just to know that they're freaking cared for. Yeah. yeah I, I remember the first time I distributed naloxone to this young kid and I went and met him at Panera. So this was in 2012. Mm-hmm. And he just looked at me. I'm like, I got naloxone. I trained him. I gave it to him. He just looked at me. He's like, why are you doing this? Mm-hmm. And I said, cause I don't want you to die. I care about you. I buried my son. But he just had this look like he couldn't, because there was no naloxone here mm-hmm. then, nothing. And he just looked at me like, why are you doing this? Yeah. And that's that's why we're doing this, because we care. Because this drug use needs to be, the, the whole crisis needs to be brought into the health system. We need to treat it like a disorder. Do the, like we said, science-based, evidence-based mm-hmm. measures. Stop the stigma, the marginalization. Bring people out of alleyways and darkness and 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 
come to get help and say, it's okay. You are not a defective human being. You have a medical disorder. Let's treat it. Let's help you. Let's keep you alive, just like we would with any other medical condition. Yeah, I absolutely agree with Tammy and and, uh, obviously what Chris had said as well. And and to emphasize that, it's it's the truth. And I, I just care. Just care enough for people. That's that's what it's about, for sure. Oh, and that is it. We are going. We are. We are going to wrap this up. You can always share. You can always share, share, share this, and put it out on onto your page because we have three folks here who really know about this. And the one thing that I have learned over the past year of writing about this is. A lot of folks don't know about the opioid crisis. Oh, I'm sorry. They have they have heard about it, but until you hear from folks like uh, them and and others, so I would appreciate if you could share share this and may, maybe talk and maybe talk about it. And the more that we could talk about it, the more folks that we could help. And with that, I'm going to sign sign off and say thanks very very much. Bye-bye. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.